Hi, and welcome to the Productized Podcast. If you haven't subscribed already, you can find the Productized Podcast from your favorite podcast player app, and you can subscribe from there. This is our show where we talk with productizers and innovators and cover the stories behind great product experiences and why it matters to innovators and makers like you. So hi, everyone, and welcome to Productize Podcast. My name is Andre Marquis, and I am a co-founder and uh, one of the you know, managers, uh, curators of Productize, and I'll be your host today. For the past, you know, past few years, we've been doing a series of interviews with product innovators that have been able to beat the ceiling and become successful makers, entrepreneurs, agents of change. Our mission, of course, is to inspire, connect, and empower more people to get into product roles. And our guest today is already well known to the productized community, Hadika Dudes. Welcome, and thank you for for being with us today, Hadika. Um, I'm very happy to be here. Just before the uh, the start of this um, this podcast, and we were talking about um, Hadika's life and and how. Um, and how Hadika has been moving around uh, all over the place. She was born in India. She lived in South Africa and eventually ended up going to the U.S. and recently um, to Singapore. But let me give you a, a, a more concrete bio on, on Hadika because I think it's, it's well-deserved if, if you don't know uh, Hadika so well. Um, you might want to know that she's a co-founder of the radical, um, uh, radical product thinking movement. But more than that, she's an entrepreneur. She's the product leader. She has participated in four acquisitions as a result of the products she's built. And two of these were actually companies she founded. Hadika advises organizations from high-tech startups to government agencies and speaks at conferences around the world, including Productized into 2020 and now in 2021. And she has founded Radical Product Thinking as a movement of leaders creating vision-driven change. And she's also the author of an upcoming book titled The Radical Product Thinking, or better yet, Radical Product Thinking. The new mindset for innovating smarter, which is scheduled for launch in September 2021, and I hope you're going to talk a little bit about that as well. And by the way, she's also speaking nine languages while learning her tense. I don't know if that her tense is Portuguese, but if it is, you can count on us to help you out on that. So, welcome, Kadika. And the last time you spoke, uh, we actually spoke with each other. You were living in Singapore, so. Let's maybe start by, by that. How was that experience? Uh, it was an amazing two and a half years that we spent in Singapore. Uh, and I think, you know, a lot of the things that I talk about in terms of being vision driven and what product thinking is about. So being that vision driven product person, um, it was amazing to see that in action in Singapore over the last two and a half years applied at, you know, a country level. Uh, and just, you know, when we were there, uh, it was during the COVID pandemic. And what's amazing, right, is while other countries were in lockdown, um, Singapore was able to have mostly normal life. But because of kind of this vision-driven approach that they took um, to even tackling COVID and how they managed to get it under control. Um, so just to give you a small example, you know, in Singapore, when they did do a lockdown very early, mm -hmm. they called it a circuit breaker. 
because it was their way of communicating the vision. Like they were trying to, you know, break the circuit. So they called it a circuit breaker um, and, and masks became mandatory really early on and so on. So it, it was an amazing experience to have been there during part of the pandemic. And uh, now we're in the U.S. Uh, as of January 2nd. All right. Do they, do they have like a chief product officer in, in government or something like that? It's fascinating. It's not. But, you know, they take this vision driven approach in every agency, like every agency has its vision posted. Um, and uh, if you go to the work permit office, that was my most interesting example. Uh, mm. You know, we had just arrived in Singapore and uh, we had to go get our work permits. My kids were jet lagged. This was like we were up since two in the morning. And the work permit office talks about design thinking. You know, they tell you, uh, we want to give you control and certainty of the process. Uh, we treat our customers uh, by name, not a number. And I'm like, customers? You know, there's a government agency. And I'm looking around like, who are you calling a customer? It was, it was brilliant, right? Like that you're yeah. in an immigration office and it's calling you a customer. Um, and, and the experience didn't disappoint. So that's what I meant by this design thinking and vision-driven approach that's kind of pervasive in so many aspects of the government. That's, that's, so, that's such a visionary and it's a time inspiring. That's definitely, you know, the future of successful governments, right? So maybe just starting from the beginning and not your last tenure in Singapore, but a little bit about your background, interests, hobbies, aspects that you feel are important and in, in, in have influenced you. You were talking about growing up in a foreign country and how that basically shaped your, you know, your way. Yeah, I think uh, early on. So one of the things, my background is I've lived or worked in four different continents. Um, so I lived in India, South Africa, um, in Asia, uh, but also in the US. And uh, I've worked in Europe for a little bit. But, you know, what's I think this kind of a background gave me the ability to not just focus kind of in depth in just one area and be an expert in just one thing, but rather look at patterns more broadly. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess the way it translates into my career is, you know, instead of just being a specialist in kind of one industry, um, pretty much every job that I've ever had has always been in a different industry. Um, and, and that, uh, you know, seeing this pattern of both problems and solutions is really something that I've been able to bring into both radical product thinking, but also, uh, more broadly into the book as well. So how did you decide to get into product? Because you, you had like a number of entrepreneurial experiences, but what was the moment you realized you really want to go this, this path of product? M most people, it tends to become almost like a, an experience they remember really well when, either when they realize, oh, there's, there's a job called product manager, really? Can I, can I do that? Can I be? So what was your, your story? my realization was that product is a mindset. Um, and the way this came about uh, was, you know, I was working in a company called Avid. Uh, at the time, you know, Avid was already well known in post-production. So meaning in Hollywood, pretty much every movie that has won an Oscar uses Avid for video editing. And at the time, this was in 2003, we were breaking into news production and using video editors and uh, breaking into the broadcast industry. And so my title in that new role was yeah. 
project manager for custom engineering. And okay. This is kind of like the diametric opposite of what a product manager is about, right? Um, and what was fascinating is that's what got me into product because I realized that product is really a life skill and a way of thinking because mm-hmm. my goal was I would work with customers to figure out like, what was it that they needed? Cause all mm-hmm. we had was one product and we wanted to expand beyond that product and fulfill all of their needs. So mm-hmm. we had to talk to our uh, news producers, news uh, programmers, basically, and then figure out what was it that they needed and then expand our product slowly. So we called it custom engineering, but the goal was really to figure out what was strategic and what other people needed as well, and then expand our product. Um, And customers knew that they were participating or partnering with us and paying for custom engineering, but like we were doing things that were really expanding the product, like it was this partnership. And so what I realized was, you know, product is a way of thinking because it's like sales, you know, it's Mm -hmm. not that. So when, when you, for instance, uh, are doing a job interview, you're essentially doing sales, but similarly, when you're doing product, like no matter what change you're trying to create in the world, you're really building products. So that was my realization that product is how you uh, create change. It's a way of thinking so that you figure out like, what is your mechanism? Like, how will you bring about that change? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you do it systematically. So that was that was kind of my beginning of the product journey from something very counterintuitive and being called, you know, uh, custom engineering. All right. And you also have like an entrepreneurial, uh, entrepreneurial journey there. Was that after? What, what happened? Uh, how did you get into, you know, becoming a founder? Um, the entrepreneurship journey actually started uh, when I was doing my undergrad uh, at MIT. Mm-hmm. Uh, so myself and uh, you know four other co-founders, we got together and uh, we started our first company. It was called Lobby Seven, um, and you know we had our first customer while I was still studying. We were still undergrads, and um, and yeah, so we soon got funding after that, and we started our entrepre- uh, our, our company. Um, What was that company about? So we started out by uh, trying to be the services company delivering wireless services at the time, right? This was back in 2000. Um, Wireless services was kind of the hottest thing. You know, I I don't know, like many people may not remember, but that was the time where 3G licenses were being bought for billions of dollars. I I remember those days, yeah. Right. And so, you know, everyone was saying this was the year of wireless, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was when we started Lobby 7. So we started as a wireless services company. We were going to build apps uh, for companies. And what we realized was, you know, and this was, by the way, my, my first foray into realizing the need for radical product thinking we were being completely iteration led. Like our, our goal was we were being a services company so that we could try out different markets and find product market fit by offering different services in different markets and seeing kind of what sticks. And that's where, you know, that was an experience where we learned so much because in the end, we managed to uh, build a product. Like what we ended up building is what you would now call uh, Siri. It was basically this uh, way of being able to interact with your phone using voice as well as text. But we Mm -hmm. were too early to the market, like seven years too early. You know, this was in 2000, whereas the iPhone didn't come out till 2007. Um, 
so we were too early to the market and we were just iteration led. And that was the realization that we need to build products differently, that uh, we need to be more vision driven. Right. And, you know, um, you just told that you, you were at the MIT or, you know, what, what led you there? Um, were you always like you, when you were in South Africa, you already knew that hey, I want to be an engineer one day or was this something that came where you went, you know, to the U.S.? Uh, I think, yeah, when I was younger, I used to dream of being a scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it was this uh, desire to go to MIT for a long time. Um, and it's funny that it was after my first uh, entrepreneurial experience that I realized that engineering was not what I wanted to do, that really it was something else, like the entrepreneurship bug bit me. Yeah, that happens a lot to lots of product engineers that come from, uh, the, uh, sorry, product managers that come from the engineering background, right? They kind of understand maybe, maybe I don't want to be a full stack engineer. I want to be something closer to marketing or sales or in between or translating, right? Um, that was really cool. And um, you were telling that you wanted to go to the, to the MIT. You know, and I know Indian parents are are kind of known for being a little bit uh, pushy on their kids' uh, destinies. Let's put it this way. So how, how was that dream shaping up? So your parents say, you know, going to the US and going to study at MIT and then you're going to become an engineer or is this, you realize, oh, I want to be an engineer. Let me just check what are the best engineering schools in the world. What was the story there? Because lots of people don't do that, right? Lots of kids I talk to, they just, it just happenstance, just happens to be like that because, you know, that's what my friends are doing. And that's not really a roadmap that they define for themselves. Mm, that is interesting. Um, so I was really lucky. Uh, my parents are, you know, very progressive. Their idea was, you know, if you really like what you're doing, you can be the best at anything. That was my dad's, you know, quote always. Um, okay. You can do anything, just, you know, you have to like what you do. So uh-huh. I was really lucky that way. But uh, the idea of MIT um, came from my dad, actually, because, you know, he's an engineer. Okay. And so he said, oh, you have to apply to MIT. And I was like, oh, what is that? Um, and, and so that's how it started. Um, but you know what you say about Asian parents, you're very right. Like my daughter went to, um, a summer camp and, uh, the teacher asked, so why did you guys do the summer camp? And the summer camp was about biomedical introduction to biomedical science. And her, uh, her friend said, uh, well, as my mom puts it, doctor, lawyer, or disappointment. (laughs) (laughs) So here I am. Okay. <laughs> Having heard that, like that's definitely something I I want to make sure we never do. <laughs> okay, right. Okay, so um, just leapfrogging a little bit. You're also, um, you know, I guess to your mom, and I think that's uh, an important part of your life. Um, how, how many kids do you have? I have two kids. All right, and and uh, uh, you know, I guess. Um, you're also a founder of this radical product, uh, uh, radical product movements. Where um, can you tell us a little bit about this project? What is the main purpose? I, the first time I heard about it was actually one of our uh, speakers at Productize 2019, and, um, and and then I went check it out online, and and I was like, oh, this is really interesting. But you want to tell us a little bit about this project? How how it came up? How how what was the genesis? 
Yeah. So the way it started was, um, as I mentioned, you know, I'd worked in so many different industries um, and sizes of companies. But one thing that I kept seeing over and over was the same pattern of, you know, problems where good products go bad. Mm -hmm. um, and this is where, you know, I, I was talking to two friends or ex-colleagues of mine, uh, Nidhi Agarwal and Jordi Cadiz. And, you know, it was interesting that they were seeing the same pattern of problems and we started calling them product diseases. Mm -hmm. um, and so the question we asked ourselves is, why is it that there are a few people who just seem to have this innate gift of being able to build products? Uh, you know, mm -hmm. these are people like the Steve Jobs of the world. Um, mm -hmm. And why is it that others don't just have this innate skill? Can people actually build this skill? Um, and so that's where, you know, radical product thinking started out. So we tried to take all the intuition and hard lessons that we'd learned and, and things that and it started in the U.S., still in the U.S., before you, you, you went to Singapore, right? Exactly. exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and it started with, you know, us trying to translate all that intuition and the hard lessons through trial and error into a toolkit so that we could mm -hmm. say, you know, can we build the skill systematically um, to be vision driven? You know, you start with a vision, but it's not clear like, OK, what is a good vision? How do you actually translate that into action? And so that's what we did to build this toolkit. Um, and from there, you know, we released the toolkit. Um, and my first experience with uh, this becoming a movement was I was speaking at a conference and a person came out to talk to us afterwards, after the conference. And they came and said, wow, you guys created the toolkit. I had found this organically on Google and uh, she started using it and it was so useful. She ended up talking about it at a conference. Mm. Uh, and so we realized like, wow, you know, this is really becoming a movement. And so that was the start of us. Um, uh, creating, you know, um, more material around it, blogs, etc. And now it's evolved into something where it's going to be a book um, in September. All right. And and the toolkit is also available for free if you want to go and check it out at the website. But um, can you tell us how, how can, uh, you know, a product manager or even a product designer benefit from using it? What's the, what's the, the big outcome? Yeah. So what I found happens often, right, is as product people, we are very used to using lean and agile. And we found that lean and agile are great. They help uh, give us speed, right? So we can innovate faster because we're lean and agile. But the problem is they don't tell us where we need to go. Uh, and lean and agile, basically, they're good for execution, but not for defining the direction. And so that's where radical product thinking comes in, where uh, radical product thinking helps you define, you know, what's the change you're really trying to create? And you define that in a lot of detail so you can align the team around that vision. Then it helps you translate it into a strategy um, and then into a set of priorities, like, you know, that, that helps give your entire team an intuition for making decisions like you would as a product leader. Mm -hmm. uh, and then finally, it helps you translate that into a set of hypotheses so you can use lean and agile for execution. So basically, the whole toolkit helps you very systematically craft a vision and use it every day so that everyday activities are aligned with that vision. Uh, and so that's why we created the toolkit and we made it free because, you know, anyone who wants to create vision driven change, we wanted to really help them be able to do that. And what about the product diseases? And this is something I, I you know, I, I find it really interesting. Um, so you catalog some of these product diseases and barriers into building products. What are the most common ones? 
Yeah. So um, some of the most common ones, right, are uh, one is pivotitis. So pivotitis is basically what happens to so many startups. And that was mm. the first experience that I was telling you about at Lobby 7 right. uh, in our startup, right? So we on purpose almost said we're going to keep pivoting until we find product market fit, you know? Mm. Um, and, and basically when you keep pivoting, you end up losing momentum along the way. Your startup can only sustain so many pivots before you either run out of money or momentum. Um, and so pivotitis basically happens. Okay. We should Cody one that, right? <laughs> That's so true. You know, you can, you have this pivot, but you have this number of pivots that you can take, right? So be cautious. Right. So that's pivotitis, okay. And what, do you have any, any other diseases? Um, another example I often give is obsessive sales disorder, where, uh, you know, in the product world, this is basically where, uh, you know, your salesperson tells you, oh, you know, all we have to do is add this one custom feature and we can win this big deal. Uh, and, you know, we say yes to that because it sounds mostly harmless, right? Um, and then by the end of the year, your entire roadmap is driven by all these custom things our customers have asked for. Um, so pivotitis and obsessive sales disorder are the most common ones. Um, another one is strategic swelling, where, you know, your product just starts to grow and grow and grow until you don't recognize it anymore. It's trying to do everything for everyone, uh, but doesn't do any one thing really well. Um, so those are the common product diseases that really make good products go bad. Um, but there are about seven of them that I catalog in the book. All right. And the book will be, um, will be out soon. So will, let's talk about it uh, um, in a couple of questions. Uh, before that, um, I guess you have been working as a consultant with some of these companies. Um, regarding creating a clear vision, um, is, is there a risk of being some, sometimes too narrow on the vision or too tight on, on, on the kind of vision you're trying to um you know, to develop for a company that you become so obsessed that you, you end up kind of forgetting what is there on the edges and how do you balance this necessity of having a vision and also necessity of the divergence to look on the side? Yeah, and that's such an important question, right? Um, because you're exactly right. Um, you know, everything that we've ever learned about what makes a good vision has always been about how a good vision has to be big, aspirational. It's often called a BHAG or a big, hairy, audacious goal. Right. Um, so we've always focused on big as opposed to the details. Mm -hmm. um, and as part of this radical approach, um, my goal has been to help companies get to the details because the reality is, right, um, we, I often talk about it like constructing a house. When you're constructing a house, you're, um, the people constructing it, they need a blueprint. They don't mm. need like the, the, uh, the fancy picture of what it, um, it, it, you can't just do it based on like this grand vision of, I want to build the biggest house possible. Yeah, right. You don't, you don't buy a decoration magazine and you, you right? You, you have a blueprint, right? Absolutely. Exactly. And so my goal with this vision uh, statement that I've created is to create this blueprint and it has to be detailed enough and you're not tied to the words, but the alignment, right? Um, that's what I try to create. Like very often vision statements focus on memorizing a slogan. They mm -hmm. want it to be short so that you'll remember it. 
my goal is not the memory, but rather internalizing the vision because we share it and understand it so deeply. Um, and so we created basically this Mad Libs uh, or fill in the blank statement where uh, it answers really deep questions like whose world are you trying to change? Um, what does their world look like? Meaning what's the problem? Um, why does it need solving? Because really we can, we should accept that maybe it doesn't even need solving. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then lastly, what does the world look like when you've solved that problem? Like how will you know that you've solved it? Um, and how will you bring that about? So once you answer these detailed questions, that's the alignment that you bring about in the team. Just those discussions bring about alignment. And then you have a vision that forms this blueprint so that, you know, when you're in the middle of a heated debate, uh, that's what you can look at and you say, okay, are we being true to this vision? All right. Um, so, you know, regarding vision, an important aspect to it, and lots of companies out there, you know, you know, when, when vision is still, is um, colliding with ethics, um, we have a problem, right? Or what vi- vision ignores ethics at large, we have a problem and we have seen well, lots of examples and we all know the names. Um, so the question is, how and why should ethics be applied into product management? And, you know, there has been lots of discussion about this in, in the last few years, but as a new generation of product managers comes to the market, Gen Z, millennials, uh, I think this, this becomes an ever uh, more present uh, question, right? So do you have any framework for this? Any, uh, any kind of thought that you want to share with us? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I've realized is as a product person, right, we're changing people's lives. Like whatever products we put out there, we are directly affecting people's lives. Mm-hmm. And so, Incorporating ethics comes with that realization, first and foremost, that we affect people's lives. The moment we get that realization, right, then we can start to think about ourselves almost like doctors. Because if you think about a doctor, a doctor's role is to look at a problem and then say, I'm going to solve that problem for the patient. And so in solving that problem for the patient, Um, the doctor has to think about the patient's well-being. Like you don't just say, I'm going to prescribe these drugs to you. And if your life is worse off because of those drugs, that's not my responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. A doctor cannot say that. And so as a product person, we have to take a similar approach. We're trying to solve this problem for the user, but we can't say that, well, if that makes your life worse off, you know, too bad. That's really the the mindset that we need to shift. And so once we start to think about ourselves as doctors, then the next question is, okay, so how can we incorporate this mindset as we build products? Um, And so that's where, you know, in our vision, in our strategy, and how we translate that into our priorities, we really have to take these ethics into consideration. So for example, when I talk about the vision, right, when I talk about the who, what, why, when, and how questions, you'll notice that one of the things that's not included in the vision is the question of, you know, uh, what are your business goals? The vision is not about you at all. It's really about what's the problem you're trying to solve and how will you solve it? Uh, Because let's think about a doctor. Imagine a doctor says that her vision is to treat the patient while building a million dollar clinic. You know, all of a sudden you listen to that vision and you're like, really, is, are you solving my problem or are you trying to make money, right? So mm-hmm. it's the same thing with um, 
with with products that in building our vision we focus it really on who's the user and then when we translate that into priorities we think about it in a very similar way um, and you know i want to clarify that in in saying all of this i'm not saying that profitability is not important uh, it is super important because um, you know if we think about being um, vision driven um, or profits as well as uh, purpose you know companies if we're not thinking about profits at all if it's all about purpose that's a charity and charities have an important role in the world but they cannot take the whole burden of making the world a better place businesses touch so many more lives than charities and so ethics means that we have to think about profitability while also trying to uh, be purpose-driven. And that's how we can incorporate ethics in our everyday work. All right. And look, we, we have a bunch of people listening to us. Um, so what kind of advice would you give product managers on their journey to more senior role? That's, that's one. And an opposite question, which is what kind of advice so let's start maybe with what kind of what kind of advice would you give to to young people that are listening to this conversation right now that are either ending their masters or um you know their their degrees and they want to go into product and you know this is a very classical question but we, we get it more and more so what 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 kind of ways would you recommend people start their product journey Mm, excellent question. So I think uh, in starting your product journey, um, you know, const as, as a good product person, you're constantly bringing the customer's perspective into how you're building your product, right? And so um, in building your product, always being able to see the big picture of what is the change I'm trying to bring for the customer, Um that's if you can always keep that in the foreground and you know the second piece was how can you then start to use this to take on a more strategic role so once you've created this big picture for yourself whether through whatever product that you're working on you know how am i mm -hmm. helping the customer then you want to really align your team on these ideas so this is where um you know taking a more facilitative approach so for example you know uh, both in terms of um, the vision statement the strategy or the prioritization I, approach i talk about in radical product thinking it's really about communicating these ideas to the team um, and so taking this approach where you're constantly building a shared rationale for why are we making the decisions that we are um, that's really the key to taking on a more strategic role. So creating that alignment by facilitating discussions uh, and making sure people are all uh, agreed in terms of what's the shared picture we have of the world we're trying to create, uh, a shared understanding of priorities and an intuition, you know, for making those right decisions. Like it's the communication that's really important. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we were talking just before the podcast that, um, um, in your opinion, uh, we, we were still lacking a senior product manager, female senior product managers. Why do you think this is still a reality today? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, even traditionally for a while, right, it's been the case that uh, in leadership, there's a um, 
smaller representation of women. Um, and that's going to take a long time to change. Um, you were asking about advice for leaders. I think uh, what we really need to do is be aware of um, the lack of such diversity in product um, as we um, rise in the ladders. So what I mean by that is, you know, in as product managers, there is a pretty even distribution of men and women being product managers. But once you start looking at leadership teams, um, there are many more men being product leaders compared to women. Um, and so we have to be aware of what this means for the world when that happens, right? Um, when we don't have representation in product leadership, it often leads to products um, that don't necessarily work for um, everyone, that they work mm -hmm. only for a percentage of the population. Yeah. Um, there are so many examples. The, the most recent one was the example of, um, uh, you know, a black researcher uh, who's renowned, uh, Timnit Gebru, you know, she was talking about uh, the Google algorithm and learning model, um, how by analyzing a large amount of speech data, um, it was actually incorporating a lot of the biases that is out there in text that's online, right? That's either mm -hmm. hate speech or biased speech. We need more people uh, and diverse people to bring about these uh, perspectives and to understand where our products, um, you know, how they're affecting different people uh, in the population. Mm -hmm. And that can only come from those diverse perspectives. And so as leaders, we have to be aware of you know, whether we have the right representation so that we can make products that work for everyone. Absolutely. And speaking about the next five years or so, what do you think are the skills that will be most important for a product leader? What, do you see any, any, anything coming in in that prospective five years? Do you, do you think the same traits will remain the same? Um, yeah, one big change that I see coming, right, is, um, and, and we're just starting to see this, and it's we're at the beginning stages. Um, in the last decade, like basically Lean Startup was published in 2011. Uh, and in the last decade, what we've seen is, you know, iteration has really become the mechanism for how we build products. Um, building products has always been about iteration. And what is fuel that approach this over-reliance on iteration, right, has been that we've had a lot of credit that's been accessible. Um, there's been so such an abend abundance of credit um, that it's been really easy to say, oh, you know what, we'll try this. If it doesn't work, we'll try something else. Um, and I think we talked early on about um, how every startup, you only have a finite number of pivots before you run out of momentum and money. That window is going to shrink because in the post-pandemic economy, uh, wallets are going to be tighter. There isn't going to be as much of an abundance of credit as there once was. And so, you know, as we prepare for um, doing well in this sort of an economy, uh, in the post-pandemic economy, we really have to think about, you know, how can we take a more vision-driven approach? Just iteration alone is not going to do the trick. And so, 
the trend that I see in this next five years is we're going to need to learn how to iterate less and achieve more. Um, and that was actually the, if I recall, I think that was the title of uh, the productized talk that I was giving, or that was one of the main messages yeah. um, that we can uh, we can really iterate less and uh, do more with those iterations. Um, and, and to do that, we need to take a more vision-driven approach. Okay. And um, I guess you, you are also going, or that's part of what, what um, the book will be speaking about. I don't know too many details about the book, but uh, I would really appreciate if you could tell us a little bit about uh, the, 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 the upcoming book, Radical Product Thinking, The New Mindset for Innovating Smarter. Congratulations, by the way. I know it must be quite um, a new baby coming in. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about the book um, and give maybe our listeners some recommendations on you know how they could get their hands on the book um, as soon as possible? Um. Thank you. Um, so the book comes out in September, but uh, it'll be available on pre-order on Amazon pretty soon. I think in the next month and a half or so, it should be out there. Mm -hmm. um, so the book is about, you know, how do we build these vision-driven products? Uh, it talks about how you can um, use vision, strategy, uh, prioritization, and it gives you a very systematic approach to be able to do this. Um, and it explains how you can use this method to be able to avoid product diseases um, as well as avoid uh, what I call digital pollution. Um, so, you know, when we talked about ethics, uh, one of the things we have to realize is just as the industrial growth um, over the many, many, you know, uh, let's say the last century has created environmental uh, pollution, Similarly, you know, the digital economy has created mm -hmm. digital pollution. And right. so I talk about how we can uh, build vision-driven products that overcome both these product diseases mm -hmm. and digital pollution. All right. So one of the diseases that, that I see a lot here in the IT uh, companies in Portugal is, you know, they have great engineering skills and they have lots of good people, but they never embrace a product uh, culture that allows them to create product in the first place. And one of the diseases is because they, they have this kind of Stockholm syndrome where they get hijacked by one specific client or a couple of clients and those clients end up being such a big part of the, the revenue of the company that they they are basically hijacked by the, those clients, right? So if they decide to do a product, they end up saying, okay, but how can we do a product and then maybe lose focus on the specific client asking for, you know, obsessive uh, sales disorder, uh, feature X, Y, or Z. And then, you know, th that that's one of the most common diseases that I, that I've in, in my career, I've seen so many, many times uh, here. So if you can somehow, um, shed some light on that in your book i would i you know i think it would be super useful at least for the product community but anyways we have a bunch of questions uh for you that have been popping up and also during the the registration phase and our first question is actually from my sister that she's listening to this podcast so uh hi mariana so hi Radika and Andre, thanks for the great event so far. Um, I was wondering if you have any thoughts on the future of Clubhouse monetization, for instance, 
and if synchronous products are here to stay or just a fad. So do you want to talk about the about Clubhouse and synchronous products like like that? Um this one it's really hard to say. Um I think you know one of the things about monetization right that I've found um the the trend has until now because of the abundance of credit the trend has always been oh first get traction then we'll figure out how to um how to monetize it i think that's the piece that's really going to change um that you know i think that's going to be harder to sustain as credit becomes a little uh, harder to come by uh do you have any thoughts Andre, that you'd like to share on this one Uh, actually, I'm, I'm still kind of digesting the, the whole clubhouse thing. Um, so I have no specific thoughts on that one. Sorry, Mariana, but you got the answer from Harika. Um, all right. So we have another question here from, um, um, from Jose Oliveira. Hi, Jose. And uh, the question from Jose is, what are the best tips to manage communication between product managers and product owners? Okay. So Harika product managers and product owners communication. Uh, interesting. Okay. So one of the techniques that I've used um, is uh, the approach to productization, uh, sorry, prioritization that I use. Um, so what I use for prioritization is basically this two by two. It's an X and Y axis. Your Y axis is, uh, is this a good vision fit or not? Uh, and the X axis is, is this helping us survive or not survive? Meaning like, you know, uh, you have to decide kind of what's your biggest risk. Is it financial? Maybe it's a stakeholder. Maybe, you know, you're trying to please bosses because your boss could kill this product uh, tomorrow. So basically what you're trying to do together with your product owner, you're trying to uh, manage um, doing good by your vision and Uh, doing the right thing by your vision and you're trying to manage surviving at the same time. So it's balancing this long-term and the short-term, right? And so basically everything that's helping you both with the vision fit and if it is um, helping you survive, those are of course ideal. Those are the easy decisions. Uh, the harder decisions are investing in the vision. This is basically where it's not helping you survive in the short-term, but it is a good vision fit. This is, for example, You know, let's say you're doing three months of code refactoring and your product owner says, unless we do this, you know, we just aren't going to be able to build anymore. Uh, and so, you know, together you may decide that we have to invest in the vision. And the last example is, you know, obsessive sales disorder, which goes in vision debt, mm -hmm. which is basically it's helping you survive, but it's not um, a good vision fit. And so that's vision debt. It's like technical debt, except uh, it's on the vision side. And so together with your product owner, you know, you would talk about, okay, what are the things that are ideal vision debt or, you know, investing in the vision? Of course, you would avoid things that are, you know, both bad for the vision and it's not helping you survive, but that's an easy right. decision. Right. Um, and so you would, in your priorities, in your sprint, decide, you know, most of those things that you'll do are ideal. Occasionally, you know, wherever you can, you do some things that are in the investing in the vision quadrant because mm. you can afford to invest in the vision. And then sometimes you will do, 
vision debt because you know you need to survive and feed the people and maybe that's kind of what you have to take. Yeah, the on. problem in a local IT company is all it's all vision debt, right? So, and I guess the, and in this case, Jose Oliveira is from Portuguese IT and is the VP of product at Eneda.io, is a smart cities company. So what you're saying is that we, we should have a balance and what kind of balance should, should we have? Is there, is there any kind of, um, you know, balance, specific balance? Is, is it because I guess the second question is, okay, so how much should be vision and how much should be, um, you know, what's the vision depth limit, right. That you can have. And, and great question, right. And that, the answer to that question is very specific for your company, and which is why I go back to this as a communication tool and where you build that understanding and you have to have that discussion, you know, how much vision debt do we really have to take on? Uh, maybe, you know, you have really no money in your company. You're really desperate. All you can afford to do is vision debt, you know, and maybe that's what you have to do. Um but like, maybe you do have some flexibility. Maybe you don't have to take on all of this vision debt. But I think one of the most important things is labeling something vision debt, right? Because once you start recognizing something as vision debt, mm -hmm. now you mm -hmm. can say, okay, here's my plan to be able to pay back vision debt. I'll go invest in the vision by doing this. Um, and so that's basically the idea where you use this as a communication tool and we agree on how much we take on from each quadrant. That balance has to be right for your organization. All right. So last question from Paulo. So Paulo is asking, can you talk about your experience in the exit strategies that you participate? And I guess one of those you talked about, uh, although not the, the exit strategy uh, itself. And did you optimize the product growth strategy for those exits? Was it something you guys were planning? Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, um, great question. And, you know, I will admit that, yes, we did have to think about uh, product growth strategy as part of our exit strategy, right? Um, so the way to think about it um, is uh, as you're, you know, I've talked about, you know, being vision driven, et cetera. The reality is you do kind of have to think about your exit strategy and you have to think about like, um, there's a lot of focus on growth hacking. What, what, what happened in your specific cases, the exits you were involved, um, you know, either for, for lobby seven or any other companies that you had, they have been able to do an exit. So let me talk about the exit for my last startup, which was likely it was a wine startup. Think of it like mm -hmm. Netflix for wine. Um, we were recommending oh, that sounds pretty good <laughs> and useful for the pandemic as well. <laughs> true, true. Uh, we, again, we were too early to the market. We should have just waited until this. Yeah, let's just wait for a pandemic to come in and we'll strike all. <laughs> right. Uh, so what? Um, so what we were doing was we were giving recommendations and delivering wine. Uh, in terms of our exit strategy, um, you know what we needed to be able to show was that the recommendations that we were giving was in fact leading to sales. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, really early on in your product, that's kind of the last step in the funnel. That's not necessarily where you end up optimizing at the very, in the early stages, right? And yet, um, if you think about that uh, vision versus survival that I just talked about, uh, unless we were able to show that our recommendations were leading to sales, it wouldn't have helped us in terms of our exit strategy. Uh, and so that was something that we said, you know what, we'll take on a little bit of vision debt. And we did 
do some amount of optimization, although most of our other efforts were spent on ideal or investing in the vision quadrants. Um, so this is where, uh, you know, yes, in terms of planning some amount of growth hacking, you do end up recognizing that you're doing this as vision debt when you're doing things just purely for growth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, like sometimes it's necessary. The important thing is to be able to agree on whether, on how much to take on. The thing I find is a lot of companies are so focused on exit strategies and growth hacking that you kind of lose sight of what's the main problem that you're, you're setting out to solve. And that's the one thing you want to avoid. All right. And that was it. So um, thank you so much. We had like other questions, but we don't have time to cover all, all of the questions. So thank you so much, Hadika, for, for staying with us today. It was super uh, insightful and interesting as I was actually expecting because such an interesting and, and deep person. Um, let's, you know, if people want to reach out to you, if they want to have you know, if they want to actually do the questions that we were not able to do here today, how can they reach you? Um, and, and thank you, Andre. This was such a fun conversation. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank um, you so much. If people would like to reach out, please feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, and you can also email me at uh, radhika at radicalproduct.com. All right. So guys, if you want to have Hadika before the book, one of the possibilities, of course, is to come to the Productize Masterclasses and you'll have one and a half hour of of a masterclass by Hadika on, um, you know, it's almost as good as having Hadika on stage, but unfortunately we can still not have that happening here in Portugal for the next six months or so. Looking forward to meet meet you um, in in Portugal as soon as we can, or in the US, or uh, God knows where. So, Hadika, thank you so much for for being with us, and see you soon. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to the masterclasses. Bye bye. Bye.